morning, two people in front. Good morning. All right. This is a lovely morning to begin with. It's April now. Time flies so fast. There's so many things that are happening around us. Um, it's good to see you once again. Today I want to talk to you about victory. Victory is such a, a misconstrued word because many people have been using it in different contexts. In fact, in our present-day context, we use it as an equivalent to the American dream. When we say victory, we immediately think of success. And success, we think of measurements, how we measure success and victory. See, the way we measure victory, the way we measure success, is we put them in categories of health, wealth, and fame. That means in the present day context, in the understanding of American dream, if you're rich, if you're famous, if you're healthy, you're successful, and therefore you are victorious. Do I hear an amen to that? Now, this, this probably is best misunderstood because the word victory must be understood in a military context. See, when you pass your driving exam, you don't say victory, you say hooray, correct? When you finish filing your income tax return, you don't say victory, you say hooray. M my daughter would always ask me to buy her French fries. So I'd always ask her, uh, how many do you want? She would say, yacht. She means a lot. And uh, I'd, I'd talk to her, uh, how do you want your fries? She said, hot. So I would say, we'll buy you fries tomorrow. And she would say, hooray. That's her hooray, hooray. <laughs> See, she doesn't say victory. She say, hooray. See, in 1945, May 1945, when the Germans surrendered to the Allied forces, they called it the V-Day, the Victory Day. That's the proper context when we use the word victory. Victory, again, is best understood in a military term. I think when we approach the Bible, we have a slight misunderstanding of this concept of victory. Why is it misunderstood? Because again, we equate success with victory. Victory is measured by health, wealth, and fame. And that means if you are victorious, you are rich, healthy, and famous. And what if you're not victorious? What if you're not healthy, wealthy, and famous? See, the world calls this, <laughs> when the world says victorious, when the world says success, it's health, wealth, and fame. That's not what the Bible calls victory. That's what the world says Hollywood. Hollywood is success. Hollywood is health, wealth, and fame. But you see, the Bible defines victory in another, another way. For the Bible, victory is success. Success is being blessed. And when you go to Matthew chapter 5, you read the first couple of verses, and you read, blessed is the poor, blessed is the hungry, blessed is the meek, blessed is the one who's suffering, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the persecuted. That is not health, wealth, and fame. And so immediately you're saying, there's a problem here. There's a misunderstanding what victory really means. In fact, if you coin that word, it's not, it doesn't sound like victory. It doesn't feel like victory. It doesn't taste like victory. It, it smells like a loser. Be poor, be hungry, be depressed, be persecuted. It sounds like a loser, not a victor. It sounds like a victim. So the question is, what is victory? What is real victory? How does real victory look like? Let me begin by saying that real victory looks like defeat because real victory is God fighting your battles. Let me say that once again. 
Real victory looks like defeat because real victory is God fighting your battles. How many can say honestly with your experiences, God has been fighting your battles? Show of hands. Amen to that. I myself, for one, can testify that God has been fighting my battles because that's what victory really means. God is fighting your battles because we cannot do it on our own. I want to pick up from this story. I want to show you how victory is unfolded in this story of Joshua. Last week, we talked about Joshua. He responded to the call of the Gibeonites. He's now fighting against the five kingdoms, the middle kingdoms of the Amorites. He's now fighting one of the biggest battles in his life. He marched all night. He came to the battlefield, and when he got there, all the five kings were not there. Apparently, the five kings of the Amorites hid in a cave somewhere in Makeda. So... What he did was to go to the cave, shot the cave, and then went to the battlefield, finished the destruction of the enemy, and when it's finished, he went back to the cave in Makeda. And when he got there, he brought all the five kings outside. He made all the elders and the chieftains and all the people of Israel step on the necks of the king. He executed them, and then he hung them on a tree. Before sunset, he brought them down placed them inside the cave, and sealed the cave with large stone. That's what he did. You see, this is very interesting because, th- because this talks about victory, victory in the context of war. At the end of this chapter, verse t- 42, it's like a postscript. It's like a commentary. This is what it said in Joshua 10, 42. It says, All these kings and their lands... Joshua conquered in one campaign. One campaign. Because the Lord, the God of Israel, fought for Israel. See, this is what the battle is all about. This is what victory is all about. It's about God fighting for Israel. And here's the main point. God fought for Israel. There's not, if this is not clear, God fought for Israel. This is as clear as it goes. How many of you can say, God is fighting my battles? How many of you are fighting a battle right now? Just me. <laughs> if you had an argument with your wife, definitely you're fighting a battle. If, if you are sick, you are fighting a battle. If you are, if you are trying to mend a broken relationship, you are trying to fight a battle. See, we all have battles in our own personal lives. We are fighting our battles. But you see, if there's anything that is true in here, it is God who's fighting our battles. If we go back to his history, several hundred years before Joshua, it's Abraham. In the time of Abraham, in Genesis chapter 15, when God covenanted with Abraham, he mentioned a very, very specific prophecy that concerns the Amorites. The Amorites are now the kings that I'm talking about, the kings that Joshua just executed. So in the time of Abraham, God made a covenant with him, and God said, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back to this land and they will destroy the Amorites and that's going to be in the fourth generation. See, what's fascinating about this is that in the time of Abraham, he's childless. He was childless. And God is saying, your descendants will fight and destroy the Amorites. Before, in fact, his first struggle is to believe that he will have a son. He was old, Sarai was old, and Sarah was barren. They were childless. For one, (laughs) their struggle first is to believe that they will have a child. But hundreds of years after that, they bore their descendant and they become 
the nation of Israel. And now in the time of Joshua, they were in the campaign and God was fighting their battles. See, this is the point of the battle. Abraham was struggling to believe that he will have a child. That was his battle. And God fulfilled that battle when he gave a son to Abraham. In fact, Abraham did something but because he thought that was the way to win the battle, so he had Ishmael. But Ishmael was not God's way of fighting the battle. It was Isaac whom God's answer to fight Abraham's battle. Abraham fought his battle, and now the Amorites are destroyed because of the Israelites. See, it may look like defeat, but again, God is fighting the battle. That's the whole point of it. Now, fast forward to the time of Joshua. When Joshua destroyed the five kings of the Amorites, he was fighting the battle that was once prophesied in the time of Abraham. Here's what has how I see it. All the wars, all the conflicts in the world can be brought down to, uh, to this one event in the garden. All the conflicts that we have, especially the conflict between the Russia and the Ukraine, the conflicts that we have now here in America uh, regarding gender identification, racial discrimination, and so on and so forth, down to your personal level battlefield, down to your issue with health, down to your issue with arthritis, wealth, health, uh, uh, weight gain, or probably high blood pressure. See, all these things from the big conflicts to the smallest ones can be traced down to one event. And this one event is from an, an ancient prophecy all the way to the Garden of Eden. Now, you, you have to get this. I want you to put your thinking caps on and think with me. This prophecy, if you figure this out, you will have solved 50% of the mystery of the Bible. Are you listening? Yes? So you're going to have to th put your thinking caps on. You have to think with me. If you figure this out, you would have solved 50% of the mystery of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. This is what it says. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is very interesting. I want you to consider three things in here. Number one, there will be a conflict, an un ongoing conflict to the very end. Number two, there's a curse. The serpent was cursed by God. And number three, there's a seed. They're waiting for a seed. The seed of the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman. If you're reading your Bible, you begin with Genesis all the way to Revelation. You're looking for three things. Number one, conflict. Second, curse. Number three, seed. If you are trying to look for this, never mind all the mysteries in the Bible, but you're looking for this. You're looking for a story, a thread in the story that has something to do with a conflict, an ongoing conflict between that seed and this seed. And hopefully at the very end, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent's seed. Let me give you an example. Right after Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden, something happened. They had two kids, correct? Adam and Eve got two kids, Cain and Abel. Cain was the, uh, the firstborn. Cain and Abel. What happened next? Conflict. What did Cain do? He murdered his brother. They worshiped God, and the Bible said the, <laughs> the worship of Cain was not pleasing to God, so he disregarded the worship of Cain. 
the offer of Cain. He accepted the offer of Abel. And because of that, Cain was jealous. He murdered his brother. Conflict ended to the murder of Abel. And what happened next? God confronted Cain and he cursed Cain. Cursed the you among, among creatures. And then God gave him a mark so that whenever he go away, all the people will know that this guy was cursed. But where's the seed? So we know that there's conflict. We know that there's a curse. But where's the seed? I want you to think about this. Fast forward to the time of Jesus Christ. We're talking about Cain and Abel. Fast forward to the time of Jesus Christ. Jesus was preaching in the synagogue, and he was saying, I am the Son of God. And the Jews would not believe him. And the Jews would say, who are you? In fact, you're using the power of, of the devil. We don't believe you. This is what Jesus said. This is very interesting. This is how Jesus responded to the Jews. John chapter 8, verse 44. Jesus knew that the Jews are blood-related to Abraham. Abraham is a righteous person, according to the Bible. So there's no mis mistake in this. Jesus knew they are related to Abraham. And yet Jesus responded to them like this. He said in verse 44, To the Jews he said, You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding the truth. For there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. For he's a liar and the father of lies. Hang on. <laughs> Jesus knew that the Jews were descendants of Abraham. And yet Jesus was saying that these Jews who are opposing him were in fact the seed of the serpent. Because they are doing what the serpent has been doing from all along. And he mentioned two things. Number one, he said the serpent is a murderer from the beginning. The second, the serpent is the father of lies. You are like your father, murderer and liar. What we know from the Garden of Eden, there are two characters in that. There was one who's a liar, the serpent who deceived Eve, who lied to Eve. And then there was Cain who murdered from the very beginning. And so what Jesus is saying here is that these Jews, although they are sons of Abraham, but they are carrying out the will of the serpent. They're acting on behalf of the serpent. Are you still with me? This is the same reason when Jesus was saying to his disciples, 12 of them, he said, there will come a time that I will be arrested, I will be crucified, and I will die, but I will rise after the third day. And Peter boldly said, may it never be, God forbid. You know what Jesus said? Get thee behind me, Satan. Why would Jesus say that? Peter is not Satan, but because he was influenced by Satan. Because he was doing something that Satan would want to do to Jesus to stop him from the very mission that God has given or placed on his shoulders. What Jesus says is that anyone who does the works of the devil by trying to stop the seed of the woman is the seed of the serpent. The enmity is between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Anyone who abides by the will of the serpent, stopping the seed of the woman, is the seed of the serpent. It looks like anyone who's trying to fight the seed of the woman is with the serpent. So it begins, it begs the question, why is there a battle in the first place between Israel and the Canaanites? Now you read from the book of Deuteronomy all the way to Joshua and Judges and Ruth, and kings, and chronicles, and Samuel. There are so many battles between Israel and the surrounding nations. Why is there a battle in the first place? 
Because see, the Canaanites, if you trace the conflict, the curse, and the seed, the Canaanites were cursed. How do you say that? How do you say that? Genesis chapter 9, verse 24 and 25. After the flood, Noah and his family survived. That means Noah, Mrs. Noah, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and the Mrs. Eight people in the boat. After the flood subsided, Noah planted a vineyard, and he got drunk. And when he became drunk, he was naked, and his son, Ham, did something shameful by calling his brothers to shame Noah. And when Noah woke from his drunkenness, he cursed his son, Ham, by cursing his grandson, Canaan. The name of the son of Ham was Canaan. He said this in verse 24 and 25. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will be to his brothers. What you have here is the curse, the conflict, and the seed. As if Canaan is the seed of the serpent trying to undo the curse. But he was in himself cursed because of what he did, because of what his father did. See, one of the deceptions of the enemy is to make us believe that victory is having a nice house, nice cars, promotions, bonuses, being healthy, famous, and well-respected. That's not victory. That's the American dream. Do not ever fall into the deception that American dream equals victory. No, sir. Victory is something else. The devil would have made us believe that for Adam and Eve, their best life now is to eat the forbidden fruit. Why? Because for the devil, the devil defines victory as whatever you think is best for you, even when God says no. To Adam and Eve, God said, don't eat of this fruit. And yet, they did because the devil defines victory this way. You determine what's good for you, not God. You determine what's good for you. Have you ever felt like a loser when you cannot pay your mortgage on time and when you see your friends posting photos in Facebook having a grand time vacation in Bahamas or somewhere in Europe? Have you ever felt so betrayed when you have been praying for something to God and you're claiming, Lord, I am your, I'm your ch I'm a child. I have rights, so I'm asking you to grant me this prayer. And yet God doesn't answer your prayer. Do you feel betrayed? Or do you feel disappointed when you're sick, people left you, your friends left you, you're alone, people have betrayed you, as if you're alone because of your faith? Do you feel that? See, the devil would have us believe that these things is not victory, that you are a victim. But you see, it's, it's very opposite of what Jesus taught in the book of Matthew, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed those who mourn, blessed the persecuted. For righteousness sake, that's the point here, not just being persecuted, but for righteousness sake, because yours is the kingdom of heaven. You are blessed when you have that, not how the the world defines victory as such. Beloved, I would say that, that this is just a misdirection because real victory has nothing to do with your circumstances. Real victory has nothing to do with what you're going through right now, whatever that you're going through right now. That's not real victory. Real victory has nothing to do with what's happening in your life. It has nothing to do with your suffering. It has nothing to do with your weakness. It has nothing to do with your sickness. It has nothing to do with anything that's happening in your life right now. Victory is something that God will achieve apart from you. 
that's victory. Your circumstances do not define you. Your failures do not define you. Your sickness does not define you. Whatever that's happening does not define you. You know how you are defined by God? Genesis would say that you are made in the image of God. Ephesians would say that you are God's masterpiece, regardless of your situation. The psalmist would say that you are the apple of God's eye, regardless of your situation. What I'm saying is that your circumstances does not define who you are. Victory is not defined by what's happening in your life right now. I want to show you something. This is how God would carry out his plan to destroy the seed of the serpent. Joshua chapter 10, 24 to 27. This is a continuing story. I'm going to read. You have to follow me as I read. It says, And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chief of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Now, this is a gesture of humiliation. Joshua's trying to humiliate the five kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death. He hanged them on five trees. And they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going of the sun, that means sunset, Joshua commanded and they took them down from the trees and threw them in the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remain to this very day. Whatever you heard and read, this is what God will do to destroy the enemy, to destroy the serpent's head. This is the blueprint. Now, I'd like you to imagine this. The story is very simple. Five kings, they were captured, put on the necks. All the feet were put on the necks. They were executed, hung on a tree, taken down before sunset. It was buried in the cave, large stone at the entrance of the cave. Are you still with me? Yes? Fast forward to the Gospels. Think about this. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Same story. There's a man who claims to be king, and the people were so angry that he's been claiming to be king. So this man was arrested, he was humiliated, he was flogged, he was mocked, and then he was crucified. Before sunset, he was taken down, he was brought to the cave, and a large stone was set on the mouth of the cave. Sound familiar? It's Jesus. I, I know what you're thinking right now. Is Jesus now the seed of the serpent? Why is it that what happened to Jesus happened to the five kings? Well, the answer is very obvious. No, Jesus is not the seed of the serpent. Why do they say that? Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was praying, and he was addressing God as Abba, Father. So he cannot be the seed of the serpent. In fact, he was saying, Abba, Father, would you let this cup pass from me? He was struggling for the cup of suffering, but he was addressing God as his Father. So he cannot be the seed of the serpent. In fact, he was doing that because it was the will of the Father for him to die on the cross. That's the whole point of it. See, this is God's way to reverse the curse of sin. The cross seemed like a defeat, but it was the means to the real victory. Again, victory is something that God does, not us. It's not about us. And so on the cross, it is what God did through Jesus Christ. 
It may seem like defeat, but really it's, it's the victory. Why is it victory? So we're looking at conflict, curse, and then the seed. Is it possible that Jesus is the ultimate seed of the woman? Very interestingly, twice, Jesus mentioned woman. First, when he was turning the water into wine in Cana, his mother came to him and said, there's no more wine, can you do something, please? Jesus could have said, I don't care. <laughs> but Jesus, of course, was a guest in there. So Jesus said, woman, it's not yet my time, respectfully. Why? Why did he use the word woman? Makes you want to think that he's the seed of the woman. Another time, when at the cross, he said to John, John, this is your mother, woman, this is your son. Makes you want to think that Jesus is the ultimate seed of the woman. Probably the, the difficulty here is understanding how is it that the crucifixion is Jesus' victory? How is it that the crucifixion is Jesus' victory? See, Jesus was defeated. Jesus, Jesus was mocked. He was flogged. He was betrayed. You know, it, if we define victory, it's not this one. And yet the Bible defines this as victory. Apostle Paul defines it this way. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He said this, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made the public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. What he's saying is that on the cross, it was Jesus who was making a spectacle out of the enemy, not him. Are you following me? It was the equivalent of Joshua putting his foot on the neck of the kings. On the cross, it was Jesus making the public spectacle of the enemy. How, how is that possible? Let me give you the scenario. I think this is the one, the key, so that we can understand better how the cross is God's victory. See, when he was arrested, he was first brought to the Sanhedrin. And in the Sanhedrin, it was the high priest Caiaphas who was trying to interrogate him. It was cross-examining him. So Caiaphas said to Jesus, are you the son of God? Are you really the Messiah? Tell us. And this is what Jesus said. Very interestingly, if you're not paying attention, you have to pay attention now. This is what Jesus said. He said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power coming in the clouds of heaven. What does that even mean? What does it even mean that, that the Son of Man himself is sitting at the right hand of power? Now, what he meant is, is coming from a Messianic Psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. The Messianic Psalm 110, verse 1 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah who will be sitting in power. This is what it says in Psalm 110, verse 1. And the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. You have the same image here. Joshua stepping in the neck of the kings. And Jesus have his footstool with the head of the enemy under. Can you compare the images? It's the same thing. See, on the cross, what Jesus is saying is that on the cross, this is what will happen to me. I may look like defeated, but on the cross, at the very moment when I was crucified, I am making the enemy a footstool for my feet because the Father is giving me this authority. This passage is saying is that God is fighting the battle. What is interesting here, what is very interesting here, is that this is not about Jesus alone. 
The point of it is that we are all connected to Jesus. When Paul was writing to the Romans, it was a, a very long letter. But at the very end of the letter, in chapter 16, he made uh, going through the benediction. He mentioned something that is very interesting that he probably picked up from Psalm 110, picking up from the idea that the Son of Man on the cross is making a public spectacle of the enemy. He said this, Romans chapter 16, verse 20. He said, And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Under your feet. It's not just Jesus' feet. Under your feet. What does it even mean? It means that Satan up to now is loosed. He's not yet crushed. But he's made at the footstool of Jesus Christ. And soon will come, the time will come when enemy, the Satan, the devil will be crushed under our feet. See, we're not fighting against each other because our fight is not against flesh and blood. That's what Apostle Paul said. Our fight is now against spiritualities, against powers, against principalities. Our battles is not amongst us. Our battles is with the seed of the serpent who's trying to deceive us. There are many battles in our life right now. If there's anything, anyone, any institution, any event that stops you from following Jesus, make very sure it's probably the seed of the enemy or being influenced by the seed of the enemy. And you will have to crush that thought. Make every thought captive to Jesus Christ. That's our goal. That's the way we have the victory. See, real victory, again, is not defined by your present circumstances. Real victory is what God already did on behalf of us. The thing that we cannot do, he did because he's the only one who can do that. And through the cross, he claimed that victory. And that's why the gospel is said to be good news because it already happened. There's nothing we can add to the gospel. It's already good news. It's the gospel. It's the good news. Jesus already won. His name is victory. You may be suffering. You may be sick. You may be wanting more from this life. But I'm telling you, if Jesus has conquered the grave, then nothing is too difficult for him after that. Would you say amen to that? Amen. If Jesus Christ has already risen from the grave, there's nothing impossible for him. Amen. And so if you, if you are having difficulty in this life, brothers and sisters, my only encouragement to you this morning is that if you are, have pains, if you have sorrows, if you have disappointments, bring it to Jesus Christ. He's the only one who's battled death and came to life. And therefore, he can do this because his name is victory. Would you say amen to that? Amen. Let's pray. Stand up and pray with me. Father, thank you so much for this privilege of understanding that your name is victory, that you have won victory for us, that we are not defined by our circumstances, but because of what God did on the cross, our foot will crush the enemy's seed. Soon you have prophesied, soon you have promised that we too will be victorious just like Jesus Christ. Father, as of now we claim that victory. We claim victory of, over every evil thought. We claim victory over every evil actions. We claim victory because we are with you in this fight. Father, will you look down on us? Will you bless us once again? Will you bless our hearts? And Father, I pray, if anyone here is struggling, 
with sin. If anyone here has been praying for something and it has been left unanswered, if there's anyone here who has been undergoing this sadness and loneliness, Father, I pray that you will touch our hearts. Help us to see that this is not this is not losing. Help us to see that you are the victor on the cross. And because of the cross, you can do anything for us. Your name is victory. And we claim it. Let's sing it.